0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news with our first story about a follow-up from episode 95, when we were talking about Rustler pre-compiled with Philip Sampaio. Well, Wojtek Mock shared some additional reasons why we might want to be using NIFs that are implemented in something like Rust or Zig, that it's not around performance. A lot of our discussion previously was around why Rust is a good solution when you really care about the performance. And FoyTech was like, well, hold on, hold on. There's other reasons. And he says, besides performance, an important use case for NIFs is taking full advantage of the OS capabilities, low-level APIs, syscalls, etc. We can't use those directly on the Beam, and so NIFs are an escape hatch, and Rustler and Ziggler help a lot. And I thought, that just totally makes sense. You know, when we're wanting to really integrate with something that the OS provides, and it's not already available as a BIF, a built-in function, then a NIF is the best way to do that. So there are plenty of reasons to want to use Rustler precompiled, and Rustler that aren't around performance. So thanks, Voitech,
1: for pointing that out. If you're the kind of person who enjoys solving fun little puzzles, or if you're just trying to look for a different way to learn Elixir, well, exorcism.io got two new Elixir puzzles. One is called Killer Sudoku Helper, and the other is State of Tic-Tac-Toe. And then I will mention that somewhat recently, I also saw that they came out with a GenServer puzzle. So if you're looking to learn GenServer, which can be a little bit daunting if you're new to Elixir there's one called Take a Number Deluxe that is centered on Gen Server.
2: I feel like a, a Wordle helper would be really cool right now, too.
1: That would be timely. Yeah. <laughs> a little too practical.
2: <laughs> <laughs> also, the news, Gleam now has a language server. Hooray, that's really cool. I remember when Elixir got its a language server, that was just a real big help <laughs> in just making things work really well in your editor. So now Gleam gets to have some of that experience. So the first version of this language server supports compilation, formatting, type information when you hover over a variable, go-to definition. Still to come is that IntelliSense auto-completion, go-to definition for patterns and types. And type-directed code actions, like refactoring things. It's launched. It's good. In my opinion, it's got most of the things that I care about now. But really glad to hear that there's more improvements to come. But language server, big step in a, in a life cycle of a language. So congratulations, Gleam. And the NX Explorer project reached a new milestone. It was released
0: to Hex. It also includes a 10 minutes to Explorer live book guide in the docs that walk you through how to set it up. And get started and provide a good overview. So, this release uses Rustler pre compiled, which means Explorer is now fast and you no longer need a Rust toolchain installed. So, Jose Valim explains some of the significance of what the Explorer project means. And he says Explorer brings series or one dimensional and data frames, which is tabular or two dimensional data, to Elixir. So, that's where Explorer fits in with NX.
1: Well, if you're looking for A job in Elixir, we saw online that Mozilla will be hiring a senior Elixir engineer to help work on their Hubs team to help build open source social spaces for the web. We'll share a link in the show notes, but we just wanted to share this. It may not be available at the time that you hear this, but when we were recording, it looks like it's still open. Hubs, in case you're unfamiliar, is an online 3D collaboration platform that works for the desktop, mobile, and VR platforms. It was a year ago that there was an Elixir Lang blog post about it. So we have a
0: link to that in the show notes. And the source code projects are hosted on GitHub. And there's two of them. We have links to those in the show notes as well, where it's a Phoenix app and it's all web-based. I played with it back then. I haven't revisited it recently, but it was a very interesting idea. I liked where it was going and I'd love to see it go even further.
2: All right, back in Zoom world, Open creator Parker Selbert shared a new project he created really helpful practical project and it. And it's not actually about open. It's about highlighting syntax highlighting. It's called makeup diff. It's just a parser and lexer for diff files. And by diff files, I mean, we don't usually see them in the, in the context of their own file, but it's those diff highlights that you might see when you're, you know, get diffing something. And so every once in a while, you might want to write some of that in your hex docs and show a difference between, you know, some old code and some new code. Why that matters is because makeup is the syntax highlighter for HexDocs. So now, in other words, thanks to Parker, you can include diff code fences in your HexDocs and they'll be highlighted like you would expect them to be like like in Git. That's really great. It's helpful for library authors. I can imagine like Parker probably has an immediate use for it. Parker explains it this way. So makeup is what powers highlighting an xDoc. It ships with uh, C, Erlang, and Elixir Lexers. I think it also includes HTML. And then you can install other packages, and it will highlight those languages automatically too. This diff one is included in the Elixir makeup organization with the other official Lexers. So that's how good it is. It's official. When you add the makeup diff to your library, it automatically registers itself to handle diff oh, and patch files patch files are usually what you would submit in like old school Git source versioning. But GitHub has since basically taken that (laughs) normalized it into a web interface. Anyway, that's really cool. I'm really glad to see Xdoc getting a uh, upgrade by way of makeup diff. And thanks Parker.
0: And I saw there's a new blog post on the Erlang blog that looked pretty interesting. Bjorn Gustafsson explores the new type based optimizations in Erlang OTP 25. So that's the one that we're probably not using yet, right? It, it's just coming out where the compiler embeds type information in the Beam files to help the JIT or the just-in-time compiler to generate better code. This post shows off some of the new OTP25 features, but it also explores more about how types are implemented and represented in the Beam. So very interesting look inside there if, if that's
2: something that you're interested in. I'm curious to so what the benchmarks are going to be like after this, because like some of the examples are... You know, that it moves from five, like, assembly instructions to three. Like, if that's across the board, I wonder how much a performance boost we're going to
1: get out of this. I don't know. Maybe none. We'll see. The benchmarks will show. So CodeBeam in Stockholm, Sweden, has released their speaker lineup. It's a two-day conference, both in person and in virtual, on May 19th and 20th. So it's coming up soon. We'll drop a link in the show notes if you're interested in seeing the schedule. Here's another
2: roundup of the other conferences that are going on. MPEX Mountain is in Salt Lake City on May 6th. That's like right around the corner. So if you have like the time to go to MPEX Mountain in Salt Lake City, you should do that. It's going to be a good conference. And that's right around the corner. So just a couple of days from now. Also, ElixirConf EU in London on June 9th to the 10th. And in the U.S., ElixirConf U.S. in Colorado on August 30th through September 2nd really good conferences coming up. So if you're itching to go meet and greet some folks, check out those conferences. That's MPEX Mountain. We've got CodeBeam in Stockholm, Elixir Conf EU in London, and Elixir Conf US in Colorado. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this
0: podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Dave Lucia. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thank you again for having me all. So we had you with us last time in episode 75, and you were talking about RabbitMQ and Commanded and helping us get a better picture in our minds of how that works and what kinds of things that does. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in that, go check out the show notes for a link. But you've also been talking about something called Avro more recently. I saw an announcement from you about your library called Avro EX and I go and check it out. And honestly, I could not tell what it was about. It wasn't any dig against what you were doing or, you know, I'm like clicking on like, what's Avro? And I find Avro is an Apache foundation project. So I look at the Apache foundation project page and I still have no idea what it's about because while Apache may be great at shepherding projects, they kind of stink at marketing. So then there's your blog actually that said, what is Avro? And started to explain it's like, oh, I get it. Now I get it. This is like helpful. And so we wanted to have you come on and talk about Avro and Avro EX, what you've been doing there and really to help us in this space so we can recognize these kind of situations and problems and and be able to tell when to reach for a tool like this and how it can help us. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing?
3: Thank you for, for the great intro and, and again for having me for the second time. That's your mistake, not mine. <laughs> so I, I, again, I'm Dave Lucia calling in from Long Island, New York. Currently I'm actually on a little bit of a hiatus. So I've been working at a company called SimpleBet for the last about three and a half years. Right now I'm on my mini retirement and, and starting something new. Well, actually I'll already have started by the time this, this podcast episode has, has been published. At SimpleBet, I was working on a lot of really cool things. The product over there is really awesome and lends to some really interesting technology problems. We've done a lot with CQRS. There was a time when I was writing Rust and compiling it as a NIF into the Beam VM. Just a lot of things with real-time data and live LiveView and Surface and all these cool things. So there's an amazing team over at, at SimpleBet and kind of all the stuff that I'm here talking about is, is really focused on, on what SimpleBet's been doing and that really interesting product.
2: We might have to get like a uh, like, you know, how SNL has like the five time host club. They all get robes, you know, and they make a net like a little bit out of it. We might have to do something here. Yeah. Yeah, Dave is getting there. You have a long way to go to catch up to Jose, though, because he's, you know. He's been on a lot (laughs)
1: lately.
3: (laughs) Well, I know that Jose in his office, he's got like that really amazing, the elixir drop. Yeah. Uh, Someone made that for him. I I don't know what the story is behind it, but. Uh, I, I think maybe if you guys built him an extension off of that, or I don't know, maybe some cool lighting. Are you saying that that's what you want as being part of this hosts club, this this guest club?
1: <laughs> what I really want
3: is I want a purple neon sign of the Elixir logo in my on my office. So that's that's a, a high hope, but that would be so
2: good. That'd be so good. We've done a long introduction, you know, in our previous episode. So maybe give us the, the high, the high points here. You know, I, I know that you've worked at, was it Engadget? Oh, no, no, no. The outline. The outline. That's right. Well, there was another Joshua Topolsky. Sorry. All right. So I'm jumping the gun a little bit here. You know, give me a little, the high points here of, of where, how you landed at, at Elixir. And maybe
3: you can tease us a little bit about your next place. Engadget and, and Joshua Topolsky, all of the right clues. I started out my career at at a small financial company called Bloomberg. Bloomberg is known for having the Bloomberg terminal, which is this like very expensive piece of equipment that you, if you're a financial trader, if you're in the finance world, you probably have one at your desk. I don't know what the deal is. If you're, if you're a bank and you work from home these days, I don't know what banks are doing, but Bloomberg terminal is their main product. So I started out my career working on the Bloomberg terminal on their trading platform, writing C++ and actually JavaScript. Fun tip about Bloomberg is that they did JavaScript on the server before it was cool, like before Node. <laughs> they actually have talks going back to like, I think like 2004, 2005, talking about that. Anyways, left the terminal and went over to Bloomberg.com, worked on the launch of Bloomberg business, Bloomberg business week, Bloomberg politics. This is back in like 2014 and met a guy named Joshua Topolsky, who formerly was involved in Engadget and The Verge and Vox. He left to go do his own thing called theoutline.com. And I was at that time getting interested in both Elm, which is a functional programming language, is like kind of a functional replacement for JavaScript, which is really cool. And then got tipped off from my manager about Elixir. And the moment I found Elixir, I was like, okay, this is really cool. You can make like Slack bots and you could do all this real-time stuff. And I was actually more fascinated with like the pattern matching and the you know, function heads and all that kind of stuff was just like incredibly amazing to me. I saw that Josh Sapolsky, his CTO was looking for an engineer to do Elixir. And I was trying to push Elixir at Bloomberg and they're like, we're a C++ JavaScript shop. We don't do anything else. Not happening. So I was like, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the outline. I'm going to do Elixir. The outline was really cool. We were an online magazine. We built this really visually expressive website, kind of had like Snapchat type navigation on your phone for kind of like moving between articles, which I think was ahead of its time. And I don't, I haven't seen anyone do it as well as we did. In my opinion, the content of the website was focused on power culture in the future. And, Really interesting website, had some really, you know, popular articles, but kind of lost traction. A lot of things happening in the world around 2016 that I won't mention here, that kind of, you know, threw media companies in general for a loop, ultimately left the outline, did some really fun stuff there, all built on Elixir and JavaScript, and left and went to SimpleBet, was there for three and a half years. I think we talked a lot about SimpleBet the last time I was here, so... So maybe I won't say too much unless you want me to. <laughs> the big parts
2: here is, is how, how you guys architected the flow of data. use CRDT. You mentioned Rust already. You did a, a lot of good things there. Steer us towards like, what is Avro? Like, why should anyone care about Avro? Like, what problems did it solve for you guys? Like, just, yeah, just g- give me the, the definitions
3: here. Well, let's start earlier. Let's start like kind of one year or so into simple bet. We have like this product that we, that we, it kind of works. We're kind of looking to get something into market integrated with a customer. We're a B2B business, so we have to integrate with whoever we want to do business with. And then they're talking to end users, right? So at the time we're talking to this European sports betting company and we're trying to think of like, what is the best way that we can deliver them real time sports betting market data? We kind of looked at Kafka early on and our our CTO was like dead set on, it's gonna be Kafka. If you start digging into Kafka, there's a number of choices for how you might ultimately deliver and serialize information. But kind of the default solution is this serialization format called Avro. Now Avro, what is it? it? It's a way of defining a message payload, like the shape of a payload. You define a schema in a JSON file. And it's going to have a name, a namespace, it's going to have a list of fields, and then you can get pretty complex with those fields. So you might have a complex type that's going to have you know, a record underneath a union, underneath another record with an integer and a float and a map and an array. And so you can define all of this in the schema of Avro. And then when it's time to publish or read information... You serialize it by taking the schema and the payload, and you run that through the encoder, and that produces a binary message that's packed really tightly. And then when you're pulling messages off of Kafka or whatever messaging system you're using, if they have that schema or they have a previous or newer version of that schema, they could read off of it. So that was the original reason why we were trying to use Avro, is that we thought, Kafka and Avro as the right pairing for delivering information to our customers.
2: A lot of that sounds like protobuf though. Uh, and and protobuf does a lot of the sim- similar things. You define your schema, it can do all those union kind of things and you package it in certain ways and it it has an encoder and decoder and all that. And I and I thought I think that works with Kafka well as well as a bunch of other message buses, but like what does
3: Avro do differently there? A number of things. So one There's Protobuf, there's Thrift, and there's Avro. And from my understanding, they're kind of all trying to solve the same problem, which is I have data, I want to serialize it to binary because I want to package it really small. I either want to send that message elsewhere or I'm trying to do RPC or I'm trying to actually store this data. And so Avro, Thrift, and Protobuf, they can all pretty much do that same thing, but there's some slight differences between all of the three. Protobuf in particular... You write a proto file, which is this own little templating syntax that you define the schema and it's actually a little bit more powerful than Avro in a few ways. I've actually never really gotten deep on protobuf. I've been like adjacent to it multiple times, especially if we're using open telemetry. Open telemetry, all of the protocols are all through protobuf. Today I learned. <laughs> but what's interesting about protobuf is that When you're defining the schema, you can define types independently of actually using the types in your message. So you might at the top say, like, I have an enumeration, it's animal, and there's cat, dog, and fish. And then you can use that and say, here's a field called my animal and use that enumeration. Avro doesn't really let you do that. You can define a type and you can name it and you could use it later But you have to use it first and then use it by name again. Protobuf gives you a little bit more flexibility. The other bit about Avro is that it's very much tied to the Kafka ecosystem and the Java ecosystem. And so if you're using Java or you're using the JVM, like you're pretty much golden with with Avro. If you're using literally any other language, you're probably going to have like... 80 to 90% of the features of Avro and there's going to be weird edge cases where things are going to break. This is where you come in, right? Somewhat. (laughs) So in episode 75, what we were talking about was our shift from Kafka to RabbitMQ and ultimately how we use RabbitMQ in a lot of different interesting ways at SimpleBet. And one of the things we talked about was that we kind of ditched the idea of using Kafka as the interface to our customers. We chose RabbitMQ instead, and we chose to use JSON as the main way that we deliver information to our customers. Circa, let's say, I think it was 2019, I was getting really deep into Avro. Earl Avro is the Erlang serialization library. I was getting really deep into that. I was fixing bugs. I was making it easier so that you could like encode nil in Elixir and serialize it and have it come back as nil instead of something else or having atom keys in your map and being able to serialize that in and out and deserialize it. I was getting like really involved in trying to make it better so that I could interact with Avro and Elixir. All of the libraries in Elixir were primarily built on top of this one Erlang library called earl avro that was built by Klarna. then we're like all right we're dropping avro we're dropping RabbitMQ, and i was like oh thank god <laughs> <laughs> i was like I, I don't need this mess anymore like it, it was such a pain to deal with and it, not not even avro it was more just like kafka in any language that's not the jvm it's just like a true pain i haven't gone deep enough to really know why the pain I know for sure that it's something about the specification of Kafka and like the wire protocol and kind of all of these things, the, not the shards, like the topics, they have these partitions and the partition groups and there's just so many details and it's so complex. And I think it's really hard to write a really good Kafka library that's where I paused for like two, three years and I was like, all right, I don't have to worry about this anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So then you're doing some recent work on Avro EX. How has it come back? How are you
3: still doing this?
2: (laughs) It wasn't finished with you, was it?
3: (laughs) (laughs) I thought the nightmare was over, Mark. I, you know, I was not sleeping, you know, worrying about, you know, packing data into binary. And then, you know, someone was like, wake up, And I woke up and it was RabbitMQ and JSON and I was all happy. And then one day the data engineering team at SimpleBet it's kind of like Freddy Krueger coming back and they're like, (laughs) they're like, Avro, Kafka. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay. Why do we, why do we bring back Avro and Kafka? Well, as we evolved as a product, we started to have a lot of different systems and not microservices, but rightly sized services at SimpleBet. So we had an entire service. All it does is data collection. So we actually send scouts to stadiums and they collect information as the game is happening. And that's like an input into our system. We're doing that for college football and college basketball. We've got all this data collection happening, coming into a Surface application on people's phones. That comes in, then goes to another service that is actually producing all of the markets that we ultimately sell which then goes through RabbitMQ and directly to our customers. Then we've got this like integration service that provides APIs and a UI portal, management of customer RabbitMQ topologies. We've also got a system that's the backend to all of our mobile games that we offer as a white label product. So all these different systems are producing analytics data or receiving customer data Over time, there was more and more of a need to be able to do analytics on that data. Primarily, the use case for us was for machine learning. We wanted to be able to make use of historical data that we were producing in our system. Ultimately, we started looking into different data lake solutions. And the one we landed on was Databricks, which is a vendor. It's built on top of this technology called Delta Lake. Don't ask me about it because I know almost nothing about it other than how to write some SQL and query the Delta Lake. It's a lake for deltas. Yeah, obviously. Yes, yes, (laughs) yes. And it's always changing is what I hear. As opposed to the Delta Pond, which I don't know exists and I haven't used. But anyways, so in order to get data into the, the Delta Lake, the data lake, you need to go through Apache Spark. And to get the data to Apache Spark, you need to deliver it through some... Message queue system and the default system is Kafka. Uh-huh. So enter in Kafka. Freddy Krueger strikes again. <laughs> all right. So
2: I th- I think we've touched on like all of the enterprise JVMe kind of like tools here.
1: <laughs>
2: I-, I don't know if we've clearly said like why all that was, was necessary. Like, okay. So think I am some other, you know, developer. I'm, ju- I just have a Phoenix app. I've just launched it on probably fly io right where else would you run your application of course why would avro come into my purview like what what are the problems that that would be a good tool
3: to solve well ultimately we need to get it into the data lake and an important part once it gets into the data lake is that it's typed and the reason you want your data types just as you would want your data types in postgres you're going to define your migrations. You're going to set up your, your database schemas. And you know when you query the column for an integer or a date time, you, you want that date time out, unless you're using SQLite and you're very brave. Really, the purpose of, of a data lake is to aggregate information from just separate sources that are probably producing things in different formats. And you need to do ETL, extract, transform, load into this data lake. Now, on the point of the publisher, so there's different originators of data. They're publishers. They know very well, or at least they should, the shape of the data and the type of the data that they're sending. When they're sending this data, it's going to go through Kafka. It sends and to go through Apache Spark. And Apache Spark is going to be the thing that's going to read it off of some message queue, and it's going to write it into the data lake. Now, this actually is going to go through multiple different formats along the way. But again, Avro, working with Kafka, is kind of like the default solution as opposed to Protobuf or Thrift or MessagePack or any of these other formats. Avro is just like, it's part of that Kafka and Confluent ecosystem that is like the de facto choice when you're serializing data and need to move it through those systems. So if I were to rephrase that, the way I
0: hear what you're describing is if I want my data for business purposes to get into Spark where I can do more analysis and and get value, business value out of my data, then the happy path the industry has currently decided to use is Kafka and Avro is part of that happy path for encoding
3: the data to go through Kafka. Is that right? That's right. Now, when it gets to Spark, Spark is like the ETL layer. So that's the thing that's going to read that Avro message. It's going to then transform it. We ultimately need to get it into the format of the the data lake. In the data lake, it's actually going to be stored in a different format. It's going to be stored in a version of, of Parquet. And Parquet is now a different serialization format that's optimized for analytic payloads. And it's a columnar data serialization format, which means that You can query on different columns and and get all the data underneath that particular column in an efficient way, as opposed to row-level data. So it goes through all of these different paths, this happy path, as you said, to get to that place that ultimately is optimized for for the querying of the data.
2: Happy path in quotes here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) it's a very happy
1: path. I think I described it as a nightmare, so it's someone's happy (laughs) so is it databricks that does the spark part or you guys also have to maintain spark and like continue to transform it to make databricks happy so
3: these spark jobs run in a spark cluster i think that runs in our own infrastructure i think before the show even started we were talking about managing DevOps and full-time roles. And there's a lot of uh, <laughs> of expensive work to be done managing these Spark clusters and kind of all the stuff that goes into Databricks. So it's kind of a complicated answer that I don't know all of the surface area of. But ultimately, Spark is the one that's kind of running
1: the jobs, that's
3: ingesting the data and putting it into the data lake.
1: It was quite the undertaking when you guys said, let's use Databricks. You had to whip out Avro again, Kafka again, make this cool Spark cluster, maintain all that infrastructure and all the code that runs those transformations to finally put it into Databricks. Right. And it's like, well, why not just use Postgres?
3: Like, Postgres is great. Why not do that? And it's like, okay, well, you can use Postgres, but then at a certain point, it gets to the size that, you know, is not really tenable anymore in Postgres or there's a certain amount of availability, or the storage gets expensive because you're dealing with terabytes or petabytes worth of data. So there's all these different trade-offs and kind of why you might choose one of these technologies. I actually think the in the cold storage of the data, it's going to like something like S3. So it's in like very cheap storage, whereas if you've got this Postgres cluster running in... I don't know, (laughs) fly.io, you're paying for like disk space and it's going to be a much higher cost per megabyte than what you'd be paying for in S3.
1: There's another tool similar. Maybe it's not similar to Databricks. I don't know. But we use a tool called Snowflake, which is a data lake and it's just backed by S3. So putting your data into Snowflake is dirt cheap because you're getting Snowflake's S3 rates. This is not an ad for Snowflake, but they have, you know, like petabytes of data. And so they negotiate with Amazon and they get these like really great low cost S3 rates. And then they just pass on the rates to you. So you're getting these like dirt cheap. You could never get them on your own rates to store data.
3: And I think the same is the thing with Databricks. they are competitors and I don't know the differences between them, but roughly solving the same problem.
0: So I'm just thinking of putting this together for myself as an, as an Elixir developer, right? If I'm working on my side project or I've got this, this little project I'm working on, I'm not going to be turning to Avro or your library, Avro EX. Now, a lot of us also work at a company, much larger companies, you know, small, medium, large companies. And when we get into those larger companies where they say this is a priority for us, we have the capacity, we have the engineering talent that we can put to managing these other things. And we want to be at that, you know, quote enterprise scale. Where it makes sense for them as a business, then this is as an Elixir developer, I'm in a situation like that. It's like, Oh, well, I happen to know some tools now that I can use on my Elixir side to help me integrate with these other solutions that they're going to reach for. So maybe that brings us back to Avro EX. You recently had a release come out version 2.0. So congrats on that. You know, just coming out with releases and, and maintaining stuff that that's a it's hard work. It is. Yeah. <laughs> So maybe you can share what some of the major features were that came out in 2.0 and where your attention and focus went in, in this development.
2: Before we do that, I want to make sure it was very clear. Avro X is something that you're maintaining now. So you, you gave us a story before where you were using Earl Avro, right? Now you're using, you know, something that you maintain.
3: Well, the first thing I want to say is that I'm not the original creator of Avro X. It is a Beam community project, which is a GitHub organization, I believe, run by Doomspork or Sean Callen, I believe is how he pronounce his last name, and many others. They run like Elixir companies and they've got a bunch of projects that kind of get sponsored. By Beam community. So I believe the original creator of Avro X is CJ Pole. CJ did a lot of great work on the foundation of this library. And I remember actually when I was first looking at Avro libraries that it was just starting work around the time that I was looking for one. And it wasn't really at the level of maturity that I needed it. So I kind of discounted it as a, as a solution. And I didn't really have the time or the bandwidth to kind of help out on the project. But for the second go around, we were evaluating different Avro libraries. And actually, I left it to one of the members of the team to choose, you know, a library that they thought was going to you know, help solve this. And they ended up choosing X. And so they integrated into one of our services. Once we were ready to integrate it into the second service, I started actually developing a, a library that made it really easy to publish analytics data for any service at SimpleBet. And so I started wrapping Avro X and making it so that really just like two or three lines of code and boom, you're producing Avro encoded analytics messages. And that's when I started to notice that Avro X was still not doing exactly what I wanted it to do, particularly when, when things kind of go wrong, getting the feedback of like, hey, you know, in this nested field, three levels deep, you gave it a string, but we really expected an integer. And instead was just kind of either getting a crash or getting something that... Argument error. Right. One of those, you know, unfortunate error messages that is ultimately not really that helpful. And when you have like big payloads that have a lot of complex fields, it's kind of a really big challenge to do the work of the investigation of, okay, what went wrong here? So that was my starting point. I was like, okay, this library has a lot of great foundation, you could do the serialization, the deserialization. You could define the schema, but I saw a lot of like obvious things that could be improved. So the first place I focused on was the actual schema definition and parsing of the schema. So schemas in Avro are written as JSON and they were using originally ecto change sets as the way to parse in that Avro schema and make it into you know, this well-typed thing that could then be passed to an encoder decoder. And what I did is I started writing a schema parser by hand. Now, I could have done this with Ecto, but a secondary goal was to minimize the number of dependencies that AvroX had. And Ecto is like this really big dependency that pulls in a lot of really great stuff, but I didn't think was really needed in AvroX. And the other thing that I really liked about writing it by myself was that I got a really tight control over tracking errors and tracking nested errors, which would probably have been very difficult to do in Ecto. Ecto does give you facilities for adding error messages, but it's usually localized to the struct that you're looking at, as opposed to an Avro. If I got something nested like two, three, four, or five levels deep, I can't really pass along that information in a useful way in Ecto. So that was my starting point, and then I kind of just. Went off after that.
0: <laughs> so I just wanted to call out. You mentioned it was C.J. Pohl, who is the original author of this, and so that's, that's Cody Pohl. I didn't catch that before. It's like I know Cody. He's also in the Utah area and active in the community. So yay, hey Cody, awesome job. <laughs> that's very cool. That's what I love about open source, where he can kick something off, help solve his problem, and now you come in and say this is very close to what I need. Let me take it a little bit further in the direction that it's important.
3: When I was like first getting interested in, okay, AvroX is a library that I want to build on top of, but I need write access. Like I'm about to go off and I want to get stuff done.
2: <laughs> that's that's how I introduced myself to all these open source
3: libraries too. <laughs> 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 so I, I had a previous relationship with, with Doomspork. Sean, we've been talking on and off throughout the years, like, him and I were going to write this like surface blog post on Elixir school that unfortunately never happened. And I still want to do, but I kind of just reached out to Sean and I was like, Hey, I sent a PR to AvroX. I have like a dozen more. What do you think about kind of, you know, giving me access to the repo? And we already had like kind of a trust situation built up where I-, I think he was very comfortable with letting me go. And the first few, um, commits he he reviewed i haven't had a chance to really speak to cody much outside of like twitter once or twice i think he's really busy with a lot of other stuff but i just wanted to make a lot of improvements in a short time window i think most of them were done over the course of like two three weeks so sean was nice enough to let me in give me write access and then i just started submitting prs reviewing my own code and getting them in cleaning up ci adding a change log Kind of all the stuff that you expect out of a high quality library. I wanted to bring that to, to Avro X and not that it wasn't high quality. I think it just needed some love that it hadn't gotten in a little while. That leads us to releasing 2.0, V,
2: V 2.0. Yeah. So congrats. You know, what's the big stuff out of there? I, I, I remember one that, that caught my eye, removing Ecto from that equation. Was there a, any other big things that happened in the 2.0?
3: Removing Ecto was all about getting in that brand new schema parser. But I also wanted to just add a lot of features that I was missing that I wanted to see. So the first part of this was in when you were decoding that JSON schema. I wanted to give you information on, okay, you're missing a field in the schema that you're supposed to have Give me an error message for that break at compile time, you know, having the bang and the regular version of each function so that, you know, I just have that nice flexibility. If you do something like in a union, a union field where it could be one of a number of different types of like an int and a string and a float. If you put two integers, I wanted it to give you a really helpful message. that's like, hey, you can't put more than one int in a union. So I really started to focus on like these very specific error messages. And that was kind of like the main part of this 2.0 release was like all those error messages and those APIs that were a little bit more flexible. The other two things that I added was a strict mode. By default with Avro, it's like very loose in what it allows you to throw at it. And there's this whole part of this, the schema registry that we didn't even really get to go into. And it's basically like a way of evolving your schemas and... This service will let you say how strict you want to be about backwards and forwards compatibility. And so I wanted to have a way where if I was the one who was defining the schema, I could turn on strict mode, just pass it a keyword with strict true. It would give me decoding time error messages that say, Hey, you, you know, added a field that we don't recognize. You can't do that. Now, if you have strict mode off, it will just happily allow it and pass it through. But I wanted, when I was the one who was authoring the schema, I wanted really good feedback. So strict mode allows you to do that. The other things I added were around uh, schema encoding. Once you go from JSON to the Elixir representation of the schema, I wanted a way to go back to that so that you can interact with the schema registry and not have to parse a JSON message, convert it to Avro's format then back to JSON, back to serialized string. I wanted to to provide a very flexible way of doing that just so you could shoot it off. Also support something called parsing canonical form, which is like a way of detecting if two schemas are equivalent, even if they have slightly different fields in them, maybe a documentation field, for example. So adding just like all of these features that were breaking changes, but really just focused on the developer experience of this library. And I I think it's much better now and certainly a lot of work to do. And I think most of that will be informed by people start using the library.
0: So that's partly a call here, right? So if you, dear listener, are out in this space and you're talking with Kafka and that's part of the system that you're needing to integrate with and you're using Avro, you need to be aware that this exists.
3: So are you interested in people helping out and contributing? Oh, I would love for people to help out. It's a really cool library because it touches on writing a parser, on binary pattern matching, packing data into its binary representation, and just some really cool low-level Elixir stuff that you don't always get exposure to because it's usually abstracted away. And I think when we start to think about the evolution of this library, there's probably a many, many, many encoding and decoding bugs that exist. So one of the open issues that I have is writing a property test for avro x so that we could start to catch those bugs before people do in production so that is something that i personally don't have the time for right now but i love for someone to to come on in and help out and you know either your experience with property testing or you want to get started i think would be a great place to to get your feet wet there It sounds like you're also
0: involved in some other projects and initiatives that are going on right now. So I understand there's something with a Markdown
3: parser. Is that right? So I've been talking with now my former coworker at SimpleBet, Marla Sariva, who's the creator of Surface. And various parts of Surface and Elixir depend on a Markdown parser called Earmark. Earmark is a great library. It's a full Elixir library that allows you to take Markdown and convert it to HTML, But I think there's also a number of issues with the library and its design. It's actually split into like three different libraries with that becomes a lot of issues when you go to upgrade and having breaking changes between those versions. So I was chatting with Marlis and I was just like, I want to write a Markdown parser or compiler. Like I think that would be a really fun project. I think it would be great for the community to have another alternative and hopefully I'll learn something. And, you know, I, I can't just sit still for two weeks being in between jobs. I need something to focus on. So last week, I, I put up a poll and was looking for a name for this library. And the Elixir community <laughs> narrowed in a, a name called Marks, which is a Markdown compiler for the people, is the tagline. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> yes.
1: Nice. Yes,
3: bells are ringing. So, so I started work on this Markdown I don't know what to call it a, a parser or a compiler. I've been calling it a compiler. And what I've learned about Markdown is that one, there are many different dialects. Gruber Markdown from John Gruber is like kind of the, the de facto standard for Markdown. But there is actually a specified standard called Common Mark and then more flavors of that built on top of Common Mark, like GitHub flavored Markdown and parsing this is incredibly difficult. I think I now have four phases to my compiler doesn't really work at all yet. I was very ambitious thinking that I could get it done in two weeks. I think this is going to be like a year-long project that I'll probably be working on. So I'll try to keep everyone up to date on it. Hopefully, I can stay committed to working on it. But I'm really excited about it just as like a learning opportunity and hopefully an opportunity to get it into some important projects in the Elixir community.
0: Well, what I think is fun about that is Dave Thomas, who wrote Earmark, and one of the things Dave Thomas said is that when he goes to really dig in and learn a new language, he writes a markdown parser in it because it forces you to touch a lot of different things. So it sounds like there's another Dave handoff here of this <laughs> markdown sounds fun. I'm just going to, you know,
2: go deep on that. So it sounds like a, an enjoyable challenge. <laughs> I'm glad you chose common mark uh, on that because I think even though we say markdown, I think almost a majority of markdown is actually in common mark. Help us conclude our our episode here. So we talked about a lot of what you're doing, what you did, what SimpleBet
3: is doing. What is next for for good old Dave? I love SimpleBet for a big opportunity for myself, which is that I'm joining a startup called Bitfo, which currently just has two of the other co-founders working there, and I'm joining as co-founder and CTO of Bitfo. I'm just going to interject
0: here and spell it. It's B-I-T-F-O for you who are listening. So Bitfo
3: is a media company, and it's focused around the cryptocurrency space, which I appreciate in the technology community is somewhat controversial. I've been intrigued by cryptocurrency throughout the years there was one time when I was running a Ethereum mining rig in my brother-in-law's basement. <laughs> That's about the extent of involvement in that that scene that I've had. But I've kind of like kept an arm's length from it, especially because I think that there's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of concern I have on environmental effects of you know energy consumption, and kind of there's like a, a cult of personality around a lot of these projects that I don't particularly want to participate in or enjoy. However there's a really big opportunity and you know growth of the space that I, I think is it's inevitable for for the space of cryptocurrency and defi which is decentralized finance for this to grow And what's really missing is educational content for the layperson who's heard about Bitcoin or whatever and is looking to get involved. And it's very easy to get directed into scams or to get funneled into some hype cycle of NFTs or whatever it is. And so what Bitfo is looking to do is to build up a family of websites focused in these different verticals in the space and provide really high quality educational content to guide people in, in the right direction and to bring them the education so that they can make smart financial decisions for them or maybe decide that, you know, it's not for them. So that's really the focus of Bitfo and what we're going to be doing. Our first focus, we own a number of different domains that are not doing a ton right now. We have ethereumprice.org, bitcoinprice.com, But our first focus is going to be a website called DeFiRate.com. And we see it as like the nerd wallet or the bank rate of cryptocurrency. We'll be focusing in on that and and building a brand around that website. So definitely we'll be sharing more. But as of this recording, I haven't started yet. So I, I don't have too much to say.
0: Well, Dave, I appreciate you taking some time to help us get a better handle on Avro, the project, the Kafka, how that was worked together. For those of us in the enterprise space, these are the kinds of tools we may be asked to integrate with. And it's important to be aware of these libraries like Avro EX that you've been working on. So if people want to get in touch with you
3: or follow up with any of this discussion or just follow you online, where should they go to do that? Thank you so much for having me on again. I'm excited to talk about I don't know. I don't know. What we're going to talk about the next time, but hopefully, hopefully it's marks in the markdown parser. Uh, <laughs> so you can find me online. I'm pretty much DavyDog187 everywhere online, GitHub, Twitter. My DMs are open. Please come and chat. I. Love Elixir. I love this space. I love this podcast. I listen every week. So really just want to welcome more people on. If you're, if you're interested in Elixir and getting involved for the first time, you know, I'd love to, to help and, and point you in the right direction. Or if you're interested in any of these projects, please do let me know and I'll, I'll help you get onboarded and get started. That's very generous.
0: Well, Dave, thank you again. But unfortunately that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.